Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, your guide to everything love, sex, intimacy, and relationships. Each week, your host, Zach Beach, interviews new experts on love, including couples therapists, relationship coaches, sex educators, and best-selling authors. Learn the best tips and cutting-edge wisdom to better love yourself, others, and the world. Thanks so much for joining us. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Learn to Love podcast, everyone. I am your host, Zach Beach, and I'm here with the incredible marriage and family therapist, Stacy Lee. Hello, Stacy, and welcome to the show. Hey, Zach. I'm excited to be here. Today, we are going to talk about communication in relationships. But before we get into that, let's learn a little bit more about Stacy. For those that don't know, Stacy Lee is a licensed marriage and family therapist and director of the Couples Institute Counseling Services. She has worked with couples for almost 15 years in the heart of Silicon Valley, specializing in recovery from infidelity, building intimacy, shifting ineffective communication patterns, and creating sustainable change in relationships. After years of training closely with relationship experts Dr. Ellen Bader and Dr. Peter Pearson, she is now the owner and director of the Couples Institute Counseling Services, which provides specialized quality resources for individuals and couples struggling in relationships. Hello, Stacey. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm very well. And I wanted to begin with kind of a personal question, because I'm always curious about the relationships of couples therapists who spend a lot of time working with couples. Now, you've been married for 16 years, and you know many things about successful relationships, and you help a lot of couples find greater health and happiness in their relationships. So how exactly does your knowledge play out in your own marriage? Is everything just perfect all of the time? Oh, of course. Yeah, I, I never make mistakes. My husband's perfect. Yep, we're just in bliss all the time. Um, I wish that was the case, but that's I don't think that that's out there anywhere. Um, relationships are always hard work. Mm-hmm. I do think that um, because I am a couples therapist and I'm studying all of this and focusing on all of the different tools and techniques and, and things that make relationships easier Uh, I think it does give me a bit of an upper hand because it's kind of in the forefront of my mind always, you know, just being able to pay attention to the things that I need to do, especially I think that there's a bit of an integrity issue for me because I'm if I'm asking my clients to do something, I feel like I better be doing that as well. So typically the things that I suggest couples to do are things that I have also Mm -hmm. tried and my husband has tried. So you try to practice what you preach. Oh, yes, absolutely. (laughs) Um, actually one of my favorite things that my husband and I do, you know, we've been through our own struggles and seen our own therapist, uh, years ago, and we learned a lot about how to work with our differences. And so we've learned really, um, ways to give really gentle redirects. So, Mm -hmm. you know, couples are often very different. So my husband is really logical. He does not, he's not very emotionally expressive and Obviously, I'm kind of the opposite of that. I'm really expressive, emotional, um, connected to relationships. And so that has caused that difference has caused quite a bit of tension in our relationship. Mm -hmm. And 
instead of trying to like push him to be more emotional or for him pushing me to be less emotional, when it does get in the way, just being able to find ways to let him know like, hey, you've gone back to that really detached place. And so usually what I tell him is I say, you're being a robot or I'll joke around with him. In a, and, in a loving way, right? Yes, no, absolutely. I'll be like, hey, uh, robot. And I'll literally make uh, a very cheesy sound effect, which also lightens the mood because, you know, I do not, I am not a sound effects expert. So I'll usually go like, bitty, bitty, beep. And it's his kind of cue to know like, oh, okay, like I've gone back to that place. And he, in return, when I get a little too amped up, will call me a fireball. And, you know, it's just a nice, gentle way for us to kind of let the other person know, hey, you've gone back to that place where we don't connect as well. And then we have the opportunity to stop, slow down, check in with ourselves. Okay, see if there's another way should I be interacting with my partner. Mm -hmm. So anyway, so that's that's one of the things that we do, I would say quite a bit, because my husband and I are very different in a lot of ways. And so being able to give those gentle redirects mm -hmm. has changed our relationship a lot. That's something I've always kind of wondered, and I wonder your opinion on, because I remember reading in one of John Gottman's books that all criticism hurts, even constructive criticism. And, you know, as partners in relationships, we often know the partner very well, and we're tempted to sort of give them feedback or recommendations for improvement. But we often don't want to feel like the person that we love is trying to change us. What's the best way to go around helping our partner, supporting our partner without them feeling like they're being criticized or judged? That is a really good question. Um, and I agree. I think criticism is, is a really difficult thing in relationships. And I think there's a slight difference of like those redirects versus criticism because I'm not telling him or and he's not telling me that there's something wrong with me and that he should change or that I should change. Mm -hmm. We're saying this is a way that we're different and that difference is okay. Like it's completely okay that he is less emotional. So there's nothing wrong with him because of mm -hmm. that, because mm -hmm. he's more logical. Um, and there's nothing wrong with me because I'm more emotional. It's just a difference. And how that difference plays out in our relationship can create like sticking points or, or bad patterns. So I think it's a little bit different than criticism. Mm -hmm. um, because criticism, like you said, is saying like, hey, there's something wrong with you. Stop mm -hmm. doing this. And this comes up in other ways. Like I'm like things in their home, like everything put away kind of thing. And he is a clutter bug and, you know, stuff all over. He's really neat. He's just not, he doesn't put stuff away. And again, there's nothing inherently wrong with either of those things. So if I come at it towards a point of criticism and say, there's something wrong with what you're doing, you need to do this better, then that's going to hurt whether it's constructive or not, because it's mm -hmm. going to feel like he's the problem or I'm the problem. But if it is just about having a conversation of, hey, we're different in this way and we need to work together to find a way to communicate mm. about this difference and navigate this difference so that we both feel respected in the relationship, mm -hmm. that's just about teamwork. That's not about anybody mm. being more right or wrong. I don't know if that difference makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. I appreciate shifting from like, oh, you versus me or you need to do this to... What I'm hearing when you use the term redirect is you notice like the situation or the interaction as going away that's not relationship serving. So you redirect sort of the external situation in order to go into a more copacetic way. Right. So you've been counseling couples for a long time. So beyond, for example, judgment and criticism, what are some of the most common reasons people 
step into your office? Yeah, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> uh, I would say some of the most common issues are obvious, like parenting, finances, division of responsibilities and time, like how we're going to do chores, how we're going to, how much time do we spend together versus spend apart, um, intimacy and connection. And then I would say the two kind of biggest ones that when we get calls for service are communication and, and conflict. And I wouldn't mind asking you real quick about some of the couples that enter into your office and it becomes immediately apparent that their relationship has turned toxic mm -hmm. and there's anger there's even hatred of the other person there's constant criticism and I always wonder like how did these couples end up being the way they are because I'm sure at the beginning of their relationship you know they fell in love with each other and they thought this was the most perfect person and what kind of behaviors do you see that people do that leads them along a more negative path and that ends up in the couples therapist's office so first of all, I, honestly, if a couple comes in and they're really angry at each other and there's a lot of hate, that doesn't necessarily signal to me that the relationship's over because um, mm -hmm. there's still emotion there. What's more concerning to me is when a couple comes in and they're apathetic or one of them is apathetic. When somebody's apathetic, they're not motivated. They don't feel like they are invested anymore. That's where a real mm -hmm. issue can come into play. But for these couples that you're talking about, absolutely, we see those couples all the time. And it's really hard because you know, you know, and I usually take people back through their story of how they met and you can see those kind of flickers of like, oh, that's right. We used to feel this way about each other. We used to love each other. You know, we had all these good times and you can kind of connect to the pain that they're experienced of feeling like, how did we get from there to here where we're at now? Mm -hmm. Oftentimes, what draws us to somebody initially is something that uh, can also start to rub us the wrong way after a while. One of the things we learn in the developmental model, which is what the Couples Institute is founded in, is how relationships go through kind of a natural flow of development. And in the beginning, when we're first connected to our partner, even our differences are lovely. You know, we're just mm -hmm. in love. We're so attracted to that person. I mean, there are different chemicals happening in our body that create us to have more attraction, more sex, more connection to one another. But you can't stay there. That's not sustainable. And so we, mm -hmm. there's a natural flow out of that where we go from being this kind of symbiotic we to looking at the way we're individuals. And that's where couples start to create like a lot of problems. That's where they get into issues. So oftentimes what happens is when those differences start to arrive, it starts to create a lot of anxiety. Like, well, if you're different than me in this way, or if we don't agree in this way, what does that mean? And so we spend a lot of time trying to pull each other to the other side because we're mm -hmm. thinking if we aren't aligned in this way, if we're not on the quote unquote same page, then our relationship's not going to be sustainable and I don't want to lose you. And so there's a lot of like fear and anxiety in that stage. So you remind me of this quote that the movement from illness to wellness is from I uh, to we, mm -hmm. like changing the first two letters. And what I'm almost hearing from you is the opposite is that early on in the relationship, there's all this excitement about the both of you. But when you shift from we to me and you recognize those differences, that's what sort of breeds levels of disconnection. Right, because most of us don't know how to navigate those. You know, we see a lot of these things in our society, 
examples of relationship, whether it's through a movie or what people are posting on social media of all this connection and how happy everybody is. And we don't actually find out a lot of ways to navigate those differences. And so, you know, oftentimes couples will go to one or two places. They'll either get really conflict avoidant and just agree to things that they don't believe in to try to keep peace. Or they do kind of what I was talking about earlier, this kind of tug of war where they're saying, no, be more like me, be more like me. And that gets kind of this hostile, very conflict ridden relationship. Mm. But both of those places lead to resentment and contempt and disconnection. And um, so that's one of the reasons that we'll often see people like you were talking about come in who you know, they had this great connection in the beginning. And now they're just all of this anger and hate even. So because Mm -hmm. when we do those things, we just create a lot of wounds in one another. So I'm hearing from you that people don't know how to navigate the differences between themselves. And what are some ways people should start to think about the differences between them and their partner? First of all, just as differences, right? Because often when we think of those differences, we think of it as a problem. Again, like the example of my husband and me. And this happened like that for years, I was so irritated that he was more cluttery than me. And he was irritated that Mm. I wanted everything put away. And we didn't just see it as a different, we saw it as a problem. So I think one of the first steps couples can make is to see these differences as just a difference, like that neither one is better or worse. It's just a difference. And to start talking about them in a little bit more of a kind of accepting, detached, Mm. you know, healthy detachment where my husband not putting away his shoes and me tripping over them is not him being passive aggressive. That's him just forgetting. But if I make it Mm -hmm. have a bigger meaning than what it is, that's where it becomes a problem versus just a difference. I'm also wondering when differences can be a positive thing, because I do think relationships can be a really wonderful container for healing and growth. And often it's nice to have somebody who perhaps challenges our views or gives us a different perspective on the world. Oh, absolutely. Even these differences that I'm talking about, they have helped us. You know, he has become a little more aware of his surroundings and I have lightened up a little bit. And I think that that's the thing. If you address those differences as a problem, you're stifling its ability to help you grow Mm. because it becomes where it's a standoff between partners, if that makes sense. Like if we look at this thing as an issue or as a problem in our relationship, then it's going to be my way against your way versus if we just see this as a difference, it's a growth opportunity to say, how can we both move towards something in the middle? Or how can we move towards acceptance? Or how can we move towards lightening up or stepping Mm. up? So yeah, I think that those differences are a beautiful way for us to have growth opportunities in our relationships as individuals and as couples. That's a beautiful sentence you just said. If you identify differences as a problem, it will be stifling to your growth. It's so true. And it's so important. And I wanted to go back to something that you said earlier, because I appreciate how you pointed out that couples with a lot of challenging emotions in their relationship still have those emotions, and it represents a struggle that they're going through in order to stay together. But something like apathy and distance and disconnection is actually worse or more indicative of doom for the relationship, mm-hmm. we might say. So I'm wondering about 
you know, there's this term called flooding, like when one partner really wants mm-hmm. to address a problem and the other one gets overwhelmed by that. So I'm mm-hmm. wondering how you do sort of overcome the dynamic of, say, one partner really wants to work something and is almost dragging the other one into couples therapy, and the other one simply has no desire to do it at all. So a couple of things there. You know, there's different types of flooding, right? When you talk about flooding, I think more kind of in the moment emotional flooding where the person is just really kind of hammering on their partner to try to deal with something because they're overwhelmed with their own anxiety or emotions and they're trying to get some relief and the mentality going on is if I if my partner and I can resolve this and I'll get relief and I won't be in pain anymore um, now when you're talking about pushing somebody into therapy and the partner's like, no, I don't want to go. This isn't a problem for me. This isn't a big deal. That is a bigger issue because that has to do with motivation. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes when couples call in, they'll ask like, hey, how do we know um, if this is going to be successful? Like, how can you tell? And I think the biggest thing, what I believe is the biggest indicator of whether or not couples therapy will be successful or therapy in general is the motivation of each individual person. Because I can teach couples skills on how to um, tolerate big emotions, to self-soothe, to be more, to slow down, to have better conversations, better communication, to be more present. I can teach people all kinds of skills um, for individuals and couples. Uh, We can talk about how to connect to motivation that people um, are afraid to connect to because it feels risky. Right. So I can do all of these things as a couples therapist, Mm -hmm. but I can't as a couples therapist create motivation or make someone want to desire a change Mm -hmm. that a partner might be asking for. And if somebody just doesn't want it, you you can't make them want it. And so there might be um, something that feels that's basically incompatible Mm -hmm. um, with those two people. And so sometimes that's a hard conversation to have with couples because if one person's asking for something and the other person says, no, I, there's no room in this for me, like I don't want that at all, mm-hmm. then you have to have a real conversation about what that means for the partner who's requesting that change. Mm-hmm. And then they have a choice to make. Do they accept that that's where their partner is or do they leave the relationship? And that's a really difficult conversation to have, especially that you know sometimes these people have been in relationships for two, three, four, five years. So when you say that the biggest indicator of whether or not couples therapy will be successful is the motivation of the participants, what do we want to be motivated to do? Is this like motivated to learn, motivated to change ourselves, change our behavior, change our relationship? What is the kind of proper motivation we want to set? Kind of everything you just said, that there's a motivation to want to grow Mm -hmm. and to be able to look at your individual responsibility Mm. in the dynamic of the relationship. Because oftentimes people will come in and they'll talk about how their partner's a problem, but Mm. they don't slow down to realize that they are also doing something that creates that dynamic. And if somebody isn't motivated to look at their part, if they're only motivated to look at what their partner needs to fix, then that won't work. So it is really this individual desire to be able to look at yourself, look at the things that you're bringing in, look at your undealt with issues, look at your growth edges Mm -hmm. individually and being willing to do that work. And what gets tricky about that is oftentimes when people come in, they're in a great deal of pain. And so that feels really risky. 
because again, we're just looking for the quickest way out of pain. And so the quickest way out of pain feels like, well, if my partner would just do X, then I won't be in pain anymore and everything will be better. And then I'll look at myself. But that's not how change is going to work because on the flip side of that, your partner is also in pain. Mm -hmm. And so then that leaves them at a standoff of both people saying, well, if you would just do X, then I won't be in pain anymore. And if I'm not in pain, then I'll do the work. But then there's just a stalemate at that point. Mm. Who's who's going to start? Does that make sense? Absolutely. We need to sort of have the mirror on ourselves a little bit. And so easily people just blame the other person as a total abdication of their own responsibility. Yeah, I have a great example of that, if you want. Yeah. So um, people will come in and they'll say, I really want my partner to be more expressive, communicate more, be more open. They never tell me anything. They don't talk to me, right? And so, Mm -hmm. you know, and then through therapy, you know, through the session, as I watch what happens when the client who is more quiet, who is identified as the person who isn't sharing, does open up. Oftentimes that person who says, hey, I want more openness, jumps on what their partner says. So the quiet Mm -hmm. partner starts sharing. And for whatever reason, either the partner who wants more openness is saying, you know, either they disagree, they remember it differently, they can't manage their own feelings when they're hearing something that's hard for them. And so they jump in or they, you know, get overwhelmed, like you said, flooded, and then they kind of take over the conversation. Well, do you think that that's going to make the person who's quiet want to speak up? Hmm. You know, it won't. And But if that person doesn't realize how they're playing into that dynamic, how they are creating their partner not wanting to speak up. I imagine that comes up a little bit with vulnerability because Mm -hmm. I often find as well with couples that often one wishes for the other to be more vulnerable. And if you just shared with me more of your feelings, we could have a more intimate relationship. But often that same person who wants the other to be more vulnerable isn't looking at how the situation that they are creating doesn't produce or create a safe space for vulnerability to happen. That's right. Yeah, we actually, um, Dr. Dr. Bader and Dr. Pearson have a, a, a term for that. It's called a lie invitee. Hmm. So if we say, hey, I want you to be more open, I want you to be more vulnerable, but then we react in a big way or we shame or guilt or get mad at our partner when they're open, the next time we ask a question where that would require re- vulnerability, they're not going to tell us the truth right. because we've, we've shown them that we're not safe. And mm-hmm. we all have a desire to connect to people, to connect to others, to connect to our partners. Um, Our brains are wired that way. But there's a a more basic function in our brain that is wired to protect us. Mm. And so relationships can get in trouble when the protection and the connection are kind of working against one another. So lion invitee? Lie invitee. Yeah, so you're inviting a lie. You're inviting them to... Not tell you something um, or to tell you what you want to hear because it's safer for them to lie to you and say, yeah, Mm. no, I agree with you than holding space for themselves and know that they're going to get a big reaction from you and that's going to feel really painful to them. So I'd love to go right into communication Mm -hmm. because we're we're sort of dancing around it so far because, yeah, the lie invitee, such an amazing concept to think about how we are communicating in a way that isn't producing the results that we want. When we talk about communication, I would say if you go to like the average person on the street and, and ask them what's most important in a relationship, 
the first answer is probably going to be communication. Mm -hmm. So my first question is, is this narrative around the importance of communication true? How crucial would you say communication is to the success and happiness of a relationship? Um, I, I agree. I think it is extremely crucial, but it's probably for different reasons than the kind of average person would think. You know, communication is a vehicle that helps us get to really important destinations. So being able to communicate well helps us learn more about ourselves, helps us learn more about our partner. It builds connection. It helps resolve issues and it increases understanding. So it's not so much that communication solves everything. It is the vehicle that helps us get to the places that we need to go to have the kind of relationships we want. Communication is a vehicle that helps us to get to important destinations. That's a beautiful metaphor. So if communication is, is so important, why do most couples find it so difficult? Oh, that's a big one. Um, <laughs> so I think, you know, when we get down kind of get down to the core of the issue, it has to do again with what I was talking about with the protection and connection disconnect, right? If you think about your your brain, Dr. Dan Siegel has a great description of the brain. You can look it up. It's called the hand model of the brain. If you close your fist and um, your thumb is tucked inside and your four fingers on top, that represents the cerebral cortex. That's where your logic and your reason lives. And what's great, when your hand is closed in that fist, your brain is working in harmony. So let's talk about your thumb now. What's tucked up in there represents your limbic system. And that's kind of the reptilian brain. That's the fight, flight, where your big emotions are housed. So like I said, when your fist is closed, all of that's working together. But your limbic system's job is literally just to watch for potential harm or threats and to protect you from it. That's where we get the fight, the flight, the freeze kind of reaction. And what happens in relationships is that we will get triggered by something our partner does or says or doesn't mm -hmm. do or doesn't say, and we get triggered and that limbic system takes over. So again, if you think about your fists being closed, what Dan Siegel calls when your four, four fingers would pop up, he calls that flipping your lid, um, mm. where your limbic system takes over and your logic and your reasoning, they're really offline at that point. You're just reacting. You're just thinking about protection and getting away from pain or harm. So we call that being triggered mm -hmm. when we think about communication. So the reason this impacts communication is that if both partners are in that triggered state, they're not going to be able to have a productive conversation. Mm. Well, let me ask you this, Zach. Have you ever experienced being in a conversation and it starts to go bad and then you start to act in a way that after everything calms down, you go, oh, why did I do that? <laughs> Um, absolutely. I've definitely felt that, you know, talk here, you can talk about, oh, when the limbic system gets over, when it's taken, when it, uh, we get triggered, you know, reminds me of any time you're having that, an elevated emotional conversation mm -hmm. with somebody and you're like, you're not even listening to me. You're not even hearing the words that I'm saying. And it's true. Like our limbic system has hijacked our brain. Yes, absolutely. Right. And, and a great way to know if you were in a conversation where your limbic system hijacked you is if you have that experience where afterwards you go, dang it, why did I do that? Um, or I, I don't want to do that. That's usually a sign that you were just kind of in that protect mode. Um, another great sign, like you just said, is if you keep saying something and your partner is just hearing, like not hearing you, like hearing something completely different, that's probably a good sign that they're in their limbic system. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So anytime that uh, that happens, you cannot communicate. And that's probably one of the biggest things that keeps us from having good communication in our relationship is mm. we don't have a muscle. We don't have a natural muscle that helps us tolerate discomfort when we're hearing things that are difficult for us. And when people mm. want open communication and they want good communication, we have to build up a muscle that can help us to tolerate and um, handle the discomfort that we're feeling when we're hearing things that are hard. So we don't have a natural muscle that lets us tolerate the discomfort, particularly right. on being triggered by, by this person who we love so much, but we have this almost evolutionary conditioning in our brain, this flight, fright, freeze response that takes over. Right. So before we get into communication, let's let's stick with this idea of when we're triggered, we're simply unable to listen and communicate. Mm-hmm. So when a couple is in your office or when, you know, a couple is listening to this and they find themselves later on uh, getting triggered, either one or both people, what's the best strategy? How do we tame this part of our, our brain and return to the kindness and warmth that we seek? So the first thing is to just accept that we all have this right? We all have this part of our brain and it's really, really important part of our brain. We need it. Definitely not about like, how do I not ever get triggered? That's not possible. So we need to have realistic expectations. We're going to get triggered. The next step is to be able for everybody to slow down enough to realize, okay, what are the things that typically trigger me? Because we do all have, you know, specific buttons that when they get pushed, they're more sensitive to if those same buttons were pushed in our partner. You know, for instance, if I feel like I've done some things around the house or done something really great and my husband doesn't acknowledge it, that's a really big button for me. And that comes from some of my own family history and things like that and relationship history. So it's important for me to know that and and then know what to do with that, right? So there's a list, a long list of all these different ways that we like defense mechanisms or what we call ineffective behaviors that we do when we get triggered. So they can be like yelling and stonewalling, manipulating, storming off, shutting down. I mean, the list is Mm. really long, so I don't want to take up all our time listing all of these. (laughs) So the first thing you want to do is, okay, what is, when I get triggered, what do I do? Okay, I withdraw. Okay, so why do I withdraw? Well, I withdraw because I don't feel acknowledged. So it's kind of, you do it in layers. So the first thing you want to do is realize how you can tell if you're getting triggered. That can be noticing physical things happening in your body. Um, you get hot, your um, hands sweat, your back gets tense, your mouth gets dry, your heart rate increases. So like there are physical signs that we're getting triggered. Mm-hmm. Beyond that, it's being able to know, okay, well, I, I stop talking when I get triggered. So then what are the like maybe some of the emotional signals that happen when we get triggered? And then being able to kind of take it a step further and kind of understand what's the vulnerability like underneath that? What button is being hit for me that is making me feel unsafe? So those are kind of the first few steps that people want to do to be able to kind of just slow down that process because that triggered response is a really knee-jerk automatic reaction. So we really want to slow it down to help people feel like they're getting more control. And by doing that, by doing those steps, that's what actually helps you build, start building that muscle. So we have to slow down and also cultivate that awareness Yes. of sort of what triggers us and how do we respond when we are triggered. Right. And so that can look like knowing that I'm triggered and knowing that I need to take some healthy space, take a healthy time out mm-hmm. um, and kind of 
get in control, have my executive functioning come back online. And, mm. you know, people will talk about taking timeouts. Mm-hmm. And I've had couples, because um, I have a very specific structure that I like to give to couples to do this, because people will come in and they'll be like, well, we took a timeout, but it didn't work. And so usually what happens when I ask, well, what were you doing when you were taking this timeout? And people will usually say, well, I was sitting over there thinking about how wrong they were, <laughs> you know, how mad I was what I was going to tell them when I went back to the conversation. And that's not really a timeout. You're basically just like dumping gasoline on the fire in your limbic system. Mm, You're just like mm -hmm. building your case. What a timeout really should look like is being able to remove yourself from what feels unsafe to, you know, take care of some of those physical symptoms. Because again, like if we took a scan of your brain in that triggered space, like your, your executive functioning would be offline and your limbic system would be lit up. So there's something physical happening in our bodies. So we want to take care of that. That can look like doing some meditation, deep breathing, exercise, doing something that can feel distracting. A lot of people like to clean when they're in this place because it's somewhat physical and um, like automatic, like almost like muscle memory, which can kind of help. And mm-hmm. once you realize you have calmed down, you're not having those physical symptoms then what you do in those moments of that timeout are really important by asking yourself, what was going on for me? Like, what made me feel so unsafe? Mm. What do I want to say when I go back? What do I want? To, how do I want to express that to my partner? How do I want to be in that conversation when I return? Um, so to cre- try to create something that you can hold with your integrity, like, okay, I want to c- be calm or I want to be open, you know, and how, how do I want my partner to feel when we're having this conversation? Again, these are things that you're creating so that if you get in that triggered state, you can try to hold on to those kind of power words to Mm. keep you grounded. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense. I really appreciate this idea of cultivating a healthy place, a healthy space, a healthy way to calm down, to look within, and to notice how easily we react to challenging situations in our relationships and pull away. And let's say I've I've done that. Let's say I've calmed myself down, I've noticed the trigger, and I'm not entertaining it too much, and I'm ready to come into my relationship in just a much more healthy way. What does good communication look like? What should my intention be uh, the next time I open my mouth to my partner? Right. So I like to give people the differences between what talking looks like versus communication because they're very different. To me, the difference is when you're talking to someone or even at someone, what that looks like is that when your partner's sharing, you're thinking about your points and your feelings. You are thinking about how wrong they are or how you're going to point it out when it's your turn <laughs> or, um, or even interrupting them and talking over them that you focus on whose details are more right mm-hmm. um, and not kind of that bigger picture of the feelings or experience. Mm-hmm. You're giving them half of your attention or are you doing something else? And this is really big with people looking at their phones or, you know, being on a screen or you only, you're only concerned about getting out of the conversation. So you will agree with your partner if, even if you are really not listening to them. So that's mm-hmm. kind of what talking looks like. So then if we look at what, good communication looks like. That looks like taking turns, listening to understand, uh, not necessarily focusing on agreeing, but understanding first, uh, being curious, open, uh, being open to your partner's experience, tolerating those differences, 
recapping what you're hearing, mm-hmm. um, looking for connecting experiences. This can be like if my if my partner tells me something about how he was hurt when I didn't acknowledge something like I can tap in and say, you know what, like, gosh, like I know what that feels like because I've felt that I felt unseen by someone before. And so, you know, I, gosh, I feel really sad that that's how they feel. So Mm. looking for those kind of connecting empathetic experiences, um, a desire to share, but also to hear your partner's point of view. So kind of feeling that more of a balance, like, I want you to hear me, but I also want to hear you, even if it's different than me. Giving your full attention and focus. That's beautiful. I'm hearing communication is just so much more receptive and open. Mm -hmm. I think we all have had that experience where we're talking and you can tell the person isn't listening. They're just waiting for you to finish speaking so that they can uh, insert their opinion or their story or something that's more interesting to them. But communication is listening to understand, is remaining curious and open. And actually, when it is your time to communicate, rather than immediately insert your opinion into the situation, but recap what you heard from the person that you are listening to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Good communication means creating enough space in the relationship so that both people have their point of view. And I like to think of this like, traveling, you know, what does that look like to create enough space, right? So when you travel to a different culture, have you ever tra- traveled somewhere, Zach, that is different? I than- love traveling. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So when you go to those places that are really different than where you're from, I would be willing to bet that you don't go around and point out, you're doing that wrong, you're doing that wrong, you're doing that wrong, right? Like when you see them doing something different, you probably are curious, like, huh, I wonder why they do something that way. Or that's interesting Mm -hmm. that they do it that way, right? And that you are creating enough space to be in your world at that moment to have your experience of how you do do different things or how you experience your culture back in the States and how these other people will experience their lives and their culture where they live, right? That's creating Mm -hmm. space, right? It's Mm -hmm. not about saying, well, now I have to go. Now that I've seen the way you do that, I have to adopt that and take it back with me. You don't have to do that. It's just being able to acknowledge it, be curious about it, and know that you can still have your own experience. And so when you think about how that plays into our communication, couples have to learn to kind of travel into each other's worlds. Because our world is made up of very different things. Like my husband and I have had vastly different life experiences. Um, and so my world and the culture and the values that are in it are different than Curtis's world. That's my husband's name. And so the way I see a situation is based on the culture of, of Stacy's world. You know, mm-hmm. it, my family of origin, my relationship history, all of those things play into the lens that I see a certain issue in. And Curtis has all his experiences and that affects his lens and how he experiences that situation. Mm-hmm. So... To have successful communication, we have to learn to travel into the other person's world and allow them to give us a tour of what this situation or experience difference means to them without feeling like we're going to be locked in their world, that we have to adopt everything they're saying and that we're trapped. But instead, knowing that once we have a good tour of their world, they're going to kind of cross the bridge over to our world and take a tour of our world. Mm. Those are like the first really important steps of good communication. 
everybody wants to talk about communication when it comes to how do we resolve conflict and how do we make decisions and how do we find solutions and all of those things, which are extremely important. But if you don't have this first step down, which is being able to travel into each other's worlds and understand those differences and, and tolerate things that are difficult to hear, you're not going to be able to get to any of those other things. You have so many beautiful like nuggets of a very tweetable wisdom. I, <laughs> I, I keep coming back to couples have to learn to travel into each other's worlds. And we also need to let the other give us a tour <laughs> of our internal internal landscape that we get to traverse. That's so beautiful. So I love what you're saying about communication, listening to understand, respecting each other's point of view. And I'm wondering about perhaps some more concrete tools that a couple might want to begin using. You know, I've heard of many. I've heard of nonviolent communication, compassionate communication, the couples dialogue. I'm wondering what are some of your favorite tools that you like to bring into people's lives to help them in their communication? So I have two favorites. And it oftentimes the way I decide which one I'm going to start with depends on how the couple communicates to start off. So if the couple has some muscle already built up to be able to tolerate differences, then I like to start with the model that was created by Dr. Bader and Dr. Pearson, which is called the Initiator Inquirer tool. And I'll go over that in a second. But the other tool that I like, that if people are coming in and their skills are very, very basic, like they don't have a lot of muscle to be able to tolerate the differences. And they're really, really tentative into traveling into each other's worlds. That's hard for them. As soon as they get over there, if they hear something they don't like, they hightail it back to their world. Like when, when there's a lot of emotion and reaction, the one I like to use is the Imago Dialogue. So both of these tools are really structured. And the Imago Dialogue is more structured than the Initiator Inquirer, which is why mm -hmm. when a couple is more reactive, I like to start with that one because it helps build up some of that muscle that we've been talking about. So both the Initiator Inquirer and the Imago Dialogue have different roles that couples take turns in. So the Imago Dialogue, you're talking about the, the sender and the receiver. Mm-hmm. And the initiator inquirer is the initiator and the inquirer. So, yeah, it's also called the eye to eye. So usually we call it the eye to eye, which is just, you know, the letter I. Let's go into the basic one first, the Imago Dialogue. Tell us about that. Uh, so you have the sender and the receiver, and they both have specific roles. So the sender is the speaker, the person who's sharing their experience. So that's whose world we're traveling into. And the receiver is the, the listener, um, the person getting the information. Uh, so the first thing, the very first step you ever want to do if you want to have a, a big conversation with your partner is you want to ask if it's a good time. Mm -hmm. I always tell people it does not matter if your partner is sitting in a chair staring at a wall. You need to ask them if, hey, there's something I want to talk to you about is now a good time because we don't know what's going on in them internally. So if we just jump into a conversation, we could start off in a really bad way, if that makes sense. So the first yeah, thing, and the first step is just saying, hey, there's something I want to talk to you about is now a good time. And, you know, if your partner's receptive, great. If they say, hey, it's not, I'm actually in the middle of something. Again, the next step is then getting really specific about when you're going to co uh, connect back. So you don't say in a little bit, in a while, in a few later on, you want to say, how about tonight at 7 p.m.? Like you want to be specific. So then the roles, what they look like is the sender 
is sharing their experience using non-blaming, non-judgmental language, I messages. It's okay to use the word you, mm-hmm. but it, it looks different than blaming like you're a jerk, you're lazy. You know, being able to say when you tell me you're going to take out the trash and then you don't do it, what happens in me is... So it's saying like there's a cause and effect, right? So you can use the word you when you're saying this is the cause and what it creates in me is this reaction. So you're also taking responsibility. So that's the first step is just for the sender to share their experience. And all the receiver does in that part is literally mirror back what they're hearing. So they just repeat back, like parrot it back. So when I don't take out the trash this is what it makes you feel. And you just go on with that until there's no more that the sender wants to share. And then the next step is for the uh, receiver to just give a summary. And the job of the sender in that place is just to, to listen and clarify or say, yes, that's a good summary. The third step is to be able to, uh, for the receiver to say, this makes sense to me. Like if I'm standing in your world, I can see how this dot connects to this dot. And again, that isn't a green. And I think this is a really important point. It's not a green. When you understand and connect dots, that's not saying like you agree. You're not saying, yes, that is what I was doing. I was trying to like tell you that I don't care about you. Yes. All you're saying is like, I see how those dots connect. And then the fourth step is, you know, being able to express some kind of empathy or emotional understanding. So the making sense part is the head knowledge. And the the fourth step, the emotional connection is the heart knowledge. I could see how this would make you feel hurt, sad, angry, you know, uh, emotional uh, descriptions. And the sender's role in both of those parts is just to, to listen and let some of that in and to clarify if those emotions that the, the receiver is sharing make sense to them. And that's it. And then you say, hey, thanks. Thanks for being willing to share. Thanks for being willing to listen. And then you switch roles so that the person who was the receiver now becomes the sender. That way, both people know, like, we're going to each have a turn. And so we're each going to have to go into each other's worlds. And so being able to know, like, I'm going to get my turn is often something that helps um, the person having to hear the things that are hard, hold back some of that, the emotional reactivity, because they know like, even if I don't agree, I'm going to get my opportunity to share my experience. This is me just understanding my partner's experience. Yeah. So that's the very basics of the Imago dialogue. Mm-hmm. And it's so important to be mm-hmm. able to hear somebody's perspective and to have your perspective heard and reflected back to you. Absolutely. Because oftentimes what we find is that people will come in and they'll be complaining about the trash or the dishes or something that seems very surface. But when you actually slow down and you allow that person to fully express what those things mean to them, when you kind of go a step further down into that vulnerability, you realize that it's a lot more than just about the dishes. And if couples are just trying to solve who's taking out the trash and who's doing the dishes, well, then that problem is just going to hop from thing to thing. Because it's not really about the thing. It's about the feeling that is happening for in that in that partner. Well, I so want to hear about the other tools, Stacey. But unfortunately, we are running a little low on time. So I think you'll just have to come back onto the show <laughs> at some point in the future. <laughs> um, absolutely. I'd love to. I can tell you that it's very similar 
one of the biggest things is that there's a little bit more flow and you get the chance to ask good, curious questions. And a lot, mm. that's the thing is a lot of us don't know how to, ha- how to ask good questions instead of mm. leading questions. So that's, that's the biggest difference. Oh, thank you so much. I want to finish by asking you a question I love to ask all of my guests, which is, what do you wish everyone knew about love? That's a great question. Um, I, I wish that everybody knew how complex love really is. I think what's really interesting is in our English language, we use one word. We use love as a mm-hmm. universal expression. You know, this is why I say I love coffee and I love building things, but I also <laughs> love my husband and I love my children. I mean, I think we all clearly know that all of those things hold different place values in my heart, but I use the same word to describe all of them. I love them. And I think the reason that I want people to slow down and realize this is because we need to understand that in in a relationship, we tap into several different kinds of love. And we have to be able to do that for a relationship to be successful. You know, there's romantic love, there's physical love, there's compassion, caretaking, committed, you know, obligation love, where we're just holding on to the commitment. There's friendship And there's kind of this deep, wholehearted love, which when we encapsulate all of those things. And the reason that this is important is that in order to have a good, healthy relationship, we need to understand that we're going to flow through all of those different parts of love at different times in our relationship. There are going to be times where we're going to be more in the committed love than we are in the romantic love, where we're going to feel Mm -hmm. more friendship-based than we are uh, feeling physically connected. And all of that is okay. I think that people come in and they'll say, I love my partner, but I'm not in love with my partner. And that's an indication to them that, oh, well, then we we probably aren't the right match or we shouldn't be together when they're just in a different type of love in that moment. Um, And so what couples can do is just know that it's okay to flow through different types of love. And Mm -hmm. if they are feeling like one type is lacking, to be able to find a way to talk about that and get connected back to that type of love and if they need help figuring out how to do that to reach out for help that is so true in a relationship we have to tap into several kinds of love for that relationship to be successful mm-hmm. so beautiful so wise <laughs> thank you so much stacy thank you Absolutely. so much for coming on to the show uh, so much wisdom i've learned so much and i hope our listeners have as well how do people learn more about you and how do people find you in the world? Um, they can go to our website and it's me and several other therapists. Um, it's couplesinstitutecounseling.com. Um, and we have lots of resources. Couplesinstitutecounseling.com. Thank you again, Stacey, for coming on to the show. And thank you, listeners, for listening. We hope you remember that if you identify differences as a problem, it will stifle your growth, and that communication is a vehicle that helps us to get to important destinations. And don't forget that there are several kinds of love, many ways to love ourselves and each other in this world, and we can tap into all of these sources in order to have happy and successful relationships in our lives. Thanks again for listening. If you would like to learn more about the show, you can go to theheartcenter.com and learn more about myself at zachbeach.com. Thanks again, Stacy. Absolutely. Thanks for having me, Zach. Thanks again for listening to the Learn to Love podcast. 
to learn more about the show and your host, head over to ZachBeach.com or TheHeartCenter.com. You can also follow Zach on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram.